Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de la Matroque, and Aina Coriel. Aina Coriel only writes Lord of the Rings, and she hasn't done that for a while. Philippe, he writes Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise, and video game stories. And Gabrielle Lawson writes TV and movies, everything but Enterprise. <laughs> so we've been reading a DS9 story. DS9 was on TV, therefore... Gabrielle Lawson. We've been reading The Honored, a story I started in 1997, put on the back burner for 23 years, and picked up again in 2020, finishing in 2021. While I had four, four, three to four other whips at the time, till I got close to finishing The Honored, then I finished The Honored, then I was like, ooh, I've only got four, and then I finished another one, I've only got three, and then I added another one, now I'm back to four which I don't recommend. <laughs> it's not easy juggling for whips. Okay, but this one is done. So we have chapter six, seven, and eight to go. Tonight is chapter six. Let's get to it. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Honored by Gabrielle Lawson. Chapter six. Garrick sat alone at his usual table in the replimat. This was the day he had lunch with the doctor or did. Not being senior staff, or staff at all, of this station, Garrick had not seen the censored logs, but news traveled on a station like this, so he knew Julian had died, for good this time. Nearly everyone who spoke of it repeated those four words, for good this time. Garrick couldn't help but hope they were all wrong, and that Julian would come up behind him, apologizing for his tardiness, a smile on his lips, and a shine in his eyes. But the pain he felt in his chest told him that wasn't going to happen, not this time. It shouldn't have hurt this much. He'd seen many people die, or killed them himself. Some of them he'd known or even called friends. Only family hurt like this. Zial had hurt like this. To him, she'd felt like a younger sister. Tane, well, Tane had not felt like anyone else. But Julian wasn't family. But Julian wasn't family. Garrick was never one to lie to himself. That was exactly why it hurt so much. With Julian alive, the fantasy had been enough. He would never force or trick Julian into going where he wouldn't go willingly. With Julian dead, the fantasy warped from someday maybe to definitely never. Well, and one could argue that he'd never have gotten the relationship he wanted with Julian. He would argue that he had the relationship he could have. Julian enjoyed his company. He smiled in Garrick's presence, indulged his interests in Cardassian literature, and accepted that he might never know the truth of this friend. And once a week, when Julian was here at the station, or Garrick was with him on the Defiant, he had him all to himself for the span of one meal, prolonged by conversation. For Garrick, it had sufficed. There was that other time, when Section 31 had faked Julian's death. But Kira hadn't believed it, and that had given Garrick enough reason to doubt it as well. Deaths, after all, could be faked, even with bodies. He had called on everyone he could think of who might have even had the tiniest chance of knowing a hint of Julian's whereabouts, to no avail. Until, of course, Enterprise had found him marooned in a cave on a dead world. Kira wasn't here to doubt Julian's death this time, for she was dead as well. Garrick sighed and stabbed his meal with a fork. As he brought the bite to his mouth, he heard someone approach from behind. Is this seat taken? The Irish accent gave it away. 
Not anymore, Garrick told him, and waved a hand to the seat across the table. O'Brien didn't speak further, but he sat and started eating. Garrick looked back to his own plate. They'd both nearly finished by the time the engineer spoke again. I never understood his friendship with you, he said. Then he lifted his glass. But you were his friend, and he was mine. So we both lost him. Garrick lifted his own glass. O'Brien's eyes were shining with unshed tears. Garrick had none. He had appearances to keep up. To Julian Bashir, he offered in toast. Our friend. They both took a drink, then finished their meal in companionable silence. Then O'Brien rose to attend to his work, and Garrick retired back to his shop. He had clothes to mend. Kira took his arm and led him back to the lab. Pack a bag, she told him. We're leaving while they're caught up in the consequences of that ceremony. She turned her back to him and started to change into her yellow cloak from the time with the biologists. I only have this one, he told her as he grabbed his med medical tricorder, the dermal regenerator, and a few other things. Maybe that will work in our favor. Her voice was muffled as she maneuvered the new cloak over her head. The whole palace here knows your purpose and that it's done, but out there, the further we get, the less they'll know. You have power in that cloak. I'll look like your helper. Once dressed, she stuffed the purple cloak into a bag, then grabbed a pad from one of the crates. He knew what was on it, the plan to keep him alive. Kira checked the door, then stepped outside, waving for him to follow. Bashir knew the way to the throne room, the leader's quarters, and the tunnels he came in through, but Kira now led him a different way, to the right and then up a flight of stairs. He kept expecting a red-cloaked figure to appear from the next corner, but the palace was unusually quiet. No priests or priestesses, no guards, no workers. Finally, Kira stopped in front of a door, then opened it slowly. It was pitch black beyond, except where the light from the corridor reached. She held out a hand to him. Watch your head, she whispered. Bashir kept his free hand up in front of his face to detect low ceilings and let Kira lead him. He tried not to think about the leader's host, to think of her dying the way Jadzia had died, or the way that first trill here had after crashing, choking on her own lungs while her abdomen was cut open and her closest companion was taken, though willingly, from her. How lonely she must have felt in her last moments. He shook his head. He was trying not to think of her. He focused on following Kira and guarding his head. His hand felt a rock and he had to duck but he kept going. After a few more minutes, Kira dropped his hand. He froze, and for a moment he feared she'd left him to be lost in the darkness. But he saw a crack of red light at the silhouette of her shoulder. The door opened wider, and he could see the color of her cloak and red-leafed trees beyond. She hurried him out and then eased the door shut behind them. Bashir just stood, taking in the smell of the trees, the brightness of the light. He hadn't been outside for days. Kira joined him, pointing toward a thin path to their right. That way leads, eventually, down to the village, she told him. They might know too much there, being this close. I think we need to go around. Nardanosti is that way, she pointed to her left. Three days, you said. That was hundreds of years ago, he reminded her. They have better technology now. She has to change, but they can probably heal the wound. All right, Kira nodded. How much time do we have? He knew what she meant. He'd been keeping track. Two days, seven hours, and thirteen minutes for me. You woke up after me, about an hour. She nodded again. So this stuff inside us keeps us from feeling pain, from needing to eat or drink, from suffocating on this air. 
I'm thinking we can probably run for hours without getting tired. I haven't been tired since I woke up on the Gindaran, but he agreed with her. And they had to go fast. It was a long way to Nardanosti, and they still had to get all the way to DS9. They couldn't afford even one wrong turn. This way, then, she turned and started running. If you see something that looks like a fluffy little bear, run faster. She had a small black rod in her hand. Bashir followed sweeping branches away from his face and hoping he wouldn't meet that little bear or the snake that liked nuts. Occasionally, he felt a tap on his boot and looked down to find he'd stepped on a flower. They couldn't run particularly fast in the dense forest. They could still make out the position of the sun, and they kept it over their shoulders as they pushed on. After three hours, they found themselves on a high plateau with the sun hiding behind the mountain. Bashir could see for kilometers down into a valley. Large animals grazed there. They had long necks and equally long tails. Had he been on Earth, he would have thought they were sauropods from the Jurassic. But where they were, there were no trees to require those long necks. Kira had told him that they used their necks to dig deep into the ground for plants and roots. The train. Kira pointed back to the southeast. There was a small village there, and the train was stopped. Maybe we can catch it. Bashir saw it start speeding off to the west. There had to be one going east at some point. He ran to the southeastern edge of the plateau. There was a drop of at least 20 meters. Might not kill them, but they couldn't run on broken legs. Kira started looking too. The best they could find was a two and a half meter drop down to a platform that led downhill into the south. I'll lower you down, he suggested, dropping to the ground with his shoulders over the edge. She sat, then took both his hands before swinging off the edge. It was a short drop for her after that. Bashir got up and turned his feet to the edge and scooted himself back toward it until he was holding on by his forearms, then his hands. Kira held his thighs loosely as if to steady him for the landing. He let go and fell a few feet. They dusted themselves off, then followed their new ledge southward and back into the trees. The sun would now would be fully behind the mountain. By the time they'd reached the foot of that mountain, the sun was heading below the horizon. The sky had taken on the color of blood. Kira marveled that she wasn't tired or sore given the hours and the distance they had crossed. Julian had gotten to see a few of the animals she had encountered foraging with Tarlingan. She'd had to use the spear a couple of times. Tarlingan had not wanted to stay out past night, but if they wanted to get to Nardanosti with enough time to get to DS9, she and Bashir had to keep going, even at night. Kira wondered now if the yellow cloak would draw attention where Bashir's purple one might blend in better, but Tarlingan had worn black, and still she was wary of a night in the wilds, so maybe it didn't matter. Kira spotted a large rock and pointed Bashir toward it. They needed to choose their next move. She hadn't seen the train again. There was a chance it didn't run at night. She dropped behind the rock and leaned her back against it. It's getting dark. I've noticed, Julian said as he dropped down beside her. Tarlingan hadn't wanted to be out in the dark, she told him, but I don't know what's out here at night. The spear may not be enough. Do we have Fenritters? Of course, the energy weapon. She nodded and set her bag down to fish into her pockets. Well, not this one, apparently. She was glad now that she had stuffed her purple cloak into her bag, but first she reached over to Julian's chest. Allow me? It will be faster. He hadn't taken the time to inventory his pockets the way she had. He nodded. She reached in, careful to steer clear of that rather squishy part of his chest, and found the weapon. She handed it to him, then found her way into the right pocket of her bagged cloak. They won't kill Ghidori people, but maybe they'll work on predators. She looked around the rock in the dimming light. Which way now? 
Julian stood for a few minute, moments. That way, he pointed to the right. I can just make out the last of the sun's light. We need to keep it to our backs, do we not? Kira stood and nodded. There was an open field in front of them, and it was getting darker by the minute. Can you see better in the dark? Then who? Then other non-enhanced humans? He shrugged. Maybe. Never tested that. If the sun is down, can we forego the hoods? He shook his head. Moon could reflect the infrared light, and the radiation may still be present. We probably shouldn't. Still, he pulled the tricorder from his bag. Kira rather enjoyed its familiar chirpings after nearly a week on Kedar. Maybe in a few hours. He snapped it closed. It's kind of beautiful here. Kira agreed with that. Like the Gidari people, the planet was stunningly beautiful, but also like the Gidari people, it could be extremely dangerous. You know, she said they would have taken you alive. You'd have had to wear a helmet to breathe, and they'd control what you could see. He turned to look at her. Really? I suppose they would have killed me after, so I couldn't tell anyone what I had seen. She chuckled. <laughs> no, they said they would have taken your memories. Well, that's better than killing me. I suppose we should get back to it. Kira threw her bag over her shoulder and kept the fin ridder in her right hand. Let's go. It got very dark at night on Gidar. Bashir was glad for Kira's biologist cloak. He could just make out her silhouette running beside him. They were making a better pace now that the forest was gone and the land was mostly flat. They'd decided to skirt wide around a little village they'd seen from the plateau, which put them nearer to the large sauropods in the valley. Most of them were curled up asleep, but a few sentries had their long necks up to keep watch. Bashir could occasionally just make out a sparkle as the sunlight reflected in their eyes. Still, it was so dark now, he couldn't have been a meter from a one's bulk and not seen it. But he could hear them. Their huge lungs drew in liters of air and then pushed it out again. But there was another sound. Something at the far side of the herd was agitating them. The sound was like thunder coming near as they reared up onto their legs and thrashed their tails. What kind of predator could take down one of these behemoths? The answer was one he didn't want to meet. Kira must have felt it too, as she put on a burst of speed. Bashir matched her, but the thunder now had become a rushing wave. They were stampeding closer and fast. Bashir and Kira ran on, hoping the beast would pass behind them and not trample them, and Bashir hoped whatever had upset them was successful in its hunt and wouldn't decide two humanoids were, a better, were an easier meal. Something straight and tall rose up in front of them suddenly. In fact, he hit his left shoulder hard on it, hard enough to knock it out of the socket. The object was hard and rough and didn't move. A tree. He quickly maneuvered behind it, relieved to hear the herd had, did not come closer. He could still feel them in his boots as they shook the earth. That sounded painful. Kira's slightly bright form appeared in front of him. Fortunately not, he replied. Still, it felt awkward and familiar and he knew just how to reduce the dislocation. He set the bag down beneath his feet, then performed the maneuver. There was a satisfying pop as the ball slipped back into the joint. There are definite advantages to having this stuff in our veins. He agreed wholeheartedly. We seem to be safe from the herd. I don't want to stick around to attract whatever scared them. We still going the right way? Hmm. Bashir picked up the bag, stepped away from the tree, and felt his way around a few more until he was in a clearing again. He looked up at the sky. He studied the stars for a few minutes, calculating and taking into account their circular movement through the night sky. Yes, he said, this way. They started running again. As the sound of the herd faded in the distance behind them, he thought he felt something else, thought he heard it. It was coming closer. He could smell it. 
Deciding that whatever it was, it was not a Ghidari humanoid and was definitely a carnivore, he raised his weapon and turned his torso to, to see it and fire. In the beam of light from the weapon, he saw a, the reflection of a pair of eyes and some very sharp teeth. The beam hit it and it screeched. What the? Kira stopped and turned. Bashir grabbed her arm and pulled her along as he kept running. I hit it. Didn't kill it. Its footfalls had been near silent before, but he could hear it now as it limped. But it was still behind them, still coming. Maybe it thinks we'll get tired and have to stop, Kira commented. I'm more concerned it might hunt in packs. It stayed behind them for another half hour, but it was tiring. Bashir could hear it breathing hard from the exertion and the pain of its wound. And then Kira fell. She rolled with it, but the beast pounced. Bashir couldn't shoot without possibly hitting Kira. Spear, she shouted. Left sleeve. There were several things hidden in his left sleeve. He gave up on one pocket, then found another. Finally, his fingers felt the round stick he'd seen Kira with earlier. He pulled it out and fumbled until it finally activated. He had to focus where to block the beast blocked his view of the yellow cloak. He jabbed it in the leg, hoping to distract it. It growled. And with that, Bashir knew right where its head was. The spear went right through the bone into its brain. The beast fell limp on Kira's body. She pushed and Bashir pulled until she could get out from under it. But now Bashir could see her very well, because here and there she was leaking the gold glowing fluid. It bit me a few times, she told him, her voice calm. Claws got me too. Well, fortunately, I'm a doctor. He set his bag on the ground and knelt beside her. Lay back and let's have a look. She pulled a, a glowing stick from her cloak and handed it to him before laying down. The stick glowed blue, and he recognized it as being like the one Tarlingan had used in the caves. With it, he looked her over carefully. The tricorder told him what he couldn't see well. She had puncture wounds to her arms and a slash to her abdomen. I think you're going to have to go purple. You can fix it, though. Bashir set the tricorder down open on the ground by his knees. He used the light to find his dermal regenerator. Abdomen first, he told her, but you'll have to take the, off the top. Radiation? Bashir checked the tricorder. Still present, but at lower levels. Should be fine if we're quick. As she worked her torso out of the cloak, Bashir retrieved the purple one from her bag and draped it over her shoulders anyway. He took off his gloves, reasoning that he'd, they'd been in the dirt and grime, leaving his bare hands clean. Not sterile, perhaps, but under the circumstances, they'd have to do. He ignored her bared breasts and focused on the large gash just to the left of her navel. The tricorder told him the wound wasn't deep, but it was wide, and certain things were trying to push their way into it. Oh, that looks... Then don't look, Bashir told her. At least it doesn't hurt. He quickly used two fingers of his left hand to push the intestines back inside, then started knitting the skin back together with the regenerator. When he pulled his last finger out and finished up, her torso began to jiggle. Bashir turned his attention to her arms just as she started laughing in full. What is so funny? he asked as he closed the puncture wounds on in her left arm. This whole situation, <laughs> she choked out. Here we are, dead on an alien planet. We were nearly trampled by a herd of giant animals that could have squashed us into mush, and now I'm sitting here half-naked after some cat-like animal just tried to eat me. Dead and glowing, he corrected, reaching for her right arm. And you won't be half-naked for long. Now, can you dress in the dark, or do I need to hold the light? The laughter faded, but she was still grinning as she sat up. I'll try the dark. Bashir found himself smiling as he turned off the light. It was all rather ridiculous. Well, what other two dead people ever had such an adventure? 
A week from now, she was saying, you and I will share a bottle over this in Quark's bar. He wiped his hands on her discarded yellow cloak and didn't reply. A week was a long time and the odds were not in their favor. She must have guessed his thoughts. We're going to make it, Julian. She found his shoulder and squeezed. Or we'll try until the last second. Deal? Oh, he wanted it. No matter how many times he'd given up before, in Auschwitz, in that last detention camp, or on the prisoner transport ship, he still wanted to live now. Deal. Kira took the light from his hand and switched it on. What did I trip over anyway? She took the light over to the beast and gave it a good look. It's so puzzling here how smaller things eat the bigger things. She was right. He'd seen half the take down a larger animal and a water bug pull a full-grown man into the water. This animal was cat-like, but no bigger than, per than perhaps a bobcat back on Earth. Be glad it wasn't bigger. He pulled the spear free and wiped it off on the discarded cloak before shrinking it. Kira moved on, looking for the obstacle that had given the cat the opening it needed. Julian, it's the track! He joined her and looked down. The light only illuminated about a foot of it, but it was enough. This was the track the train used. We only have to follow it. The call came very early in the morning. Sisko hadn't even gotten out of bed yet, but Necheyev was just as alert as ever. Sorry to wake you, Benjamin, but I thought you'd want to know as soon as possible. Know what as soon as possible? Sisko was awake now. Nothing good had ever been prefaced with those words. A representative of the Dominion is coming to Deep Space Nine under a flag of truce. That was not at all what Sisko had expected. Are they wanting to surrender? If only it were that easy, she said. They're not coming to talk to us. They're coming to talk to the Gidari. Sisko rubbed his forehead as he tried to make sense of this. Why here? The Gidari requested it as a neutral place. We're not neutral, Sisko insisted. Not to the Dominion. What do the Gidari want? Who knows what the Gidari ever want, she asked in return. What we don't want is for them to join forces with the Dominion. They wouldn't have to come here for that. It didn't make sense. They could go to Cardassia. Or maybe they want to ally with us against the Dominion. Sisko shook his head. The Gidari consider anyone who isn't Gidari irrelevant at best. They would never admit to needing us. But we could use an ally like them, Necheyev said. They'll be here in 48 hours. Maybe you can find out. This was just great. Now he had to play host to the enemy who had killed his officers and the mysterious ethnocentrists who took their bodies. Well, there we go. Chapter 6. Like I said, it's a little longer than Chapter 5 was, but not near as long as those Chapters 1 and 2. And <laughs> It is longer than the prologue, but that prologue was unusually long. So... It did end on a poignancy. Why would the Gidari want to come to DS9? And now Sisko has to deal with, just like it said, the Dominion who killed his officers and the Gidari who took their bodies. Just great. Kira and Bashir have set out. They've escaped. Nobody stopped them. They are running their way toward Nordenosti. It's at night. Kira did get attacked by a cat-like thing. I do love cats. Um... <laughs> And Bashir had to heal her up again. But they then found the track 
for the train and now they can just follow it, it'll lead them to Nardanasti, no more having to try to determine from the stars or the sun if they're going the right way. So now they can just follow that track. So this could be very, you know, well, it could work or it couldn't. It's a long way still. They did have basically, I don't know, almost the whole day to run this time. They had to go around the mountain, down the mountain, and then down into the fields. And now they are running toward Nardanasti. And the time is ticking down. But why are there no Ghidari around? Why was there no one to stop them? Why did the train go one direction, but then not the other? And it just never did again. So what's going on? Something big did happen in the last chapter, so that's probably got something to do with it. Um, at this point, I think, chapter 6, 7, and 8, probably I was starting to just write and write and write. I could be wrong, though. I don't know when I decided, okay, now we're just going to go. Um, I did have to make a change in the timing of when the Ghidari were going to come to Deep Space Nine because I had it like three days, I think. Um, or 36 hours, but I had to, but when I looked at the time Bishir had left, I like, oh, I've got to move this up. So I did kind of have to monkey with the time. So when I wrote the next chapter, I believe it was, I had to go back and change this one, put an author's note saying so. Um, but you know, you're hearing the edited copy, so you're good. See, that's when it's, when it's a whip, I may have to go back and make structural changes like that. It happened in Alien Us as well. I originally had the, um, turn taking four years well it wasn't going to work out right with four years so i made it three so yeah sometimes i will do that it's not written it's it's not chiseled in stone when it's a whip only when it is finished is it chiseled in stone <laughs> except for the typos of course so you know figuratively speaking a whip i will make changes as necessary in momentous, I had to change how many died in the flu that happened one year because the flu without vaccines and medicines for it, yeah, a lot more people are going to die. So, yeah, that's a tough one. But I really originally had it taking too many people, so I had to back it up a bit. Um, so, again, it's a whip. I can do that. Um, otherwise, the only changes I will make to a finished story are going to be typo fixes or error fixing. Like a whole word is wrong, for instance, or I got a fact wrong. Um, there, back in the journey, the young writer story, somebody pointed out, and I think I read my author's note that pointed this out too, some pointed out that they didn't have tin sheds back then or tin roofs. Um... I decided, you know, it changed too much of the story and I did not make the change and pointed out that the young writers itself was not all that accurate historically. So I let it slide. Also, whether that we would use the term, or they would use the term technology. I, again, was like, yeah, I'm not sure they wouldn't. So, you know, I left it in and acknowledged it in the author's note at the beginning of the story. But other factual errors, um... Actually, in this Garrick one, this Garrick scene at the beginning of chapter six, I had put in that Mila was his family instead of Zial. And somebody pointed out that depending on the timing of the story, Zia, M Mila isn't dead yet. So I had to choose Zial who had died. 
and I had to make that change in the story. It was a whip at the time, but still, it you know, that's the sort of thing I would go back and fix if it was a finished story. I won't make wholesale changes. I won't take out a chapter or take out a scene or, or anything like that. By the time I've posted them, they are as I want them to be. They are as the magic gave them to me and I've done my best to write what the magic gave me. And sometimes it comes up with just brilliant lines. Like, I loved an alien us. Um, the one that's not the full sentence, it starts with, you know, but the anger was gone, but now he realized. And the, but the really great part was that they had hope when there was no hope, but only hope when they had none left. That was brilliant. It absolutely sums it up, but, you know, I didn't sit there and try to make that sentence like that, that one side mirrors the other and put, turns it around. No, it just happens on the page. So that's the magic that happens when the pen is writing on the page. And it, you know, in, in, uh, in Osvianchim, it was, life was an absurdity he didn't want anymore. That's my favorite sentence in that one. And it was just like, perfect. In The Path Not Taken, which is a whip, so it's not on this podcast le le yet, but it's, it was an epiphany I had while actually at a baseball game. When my husband and I go to baseball games, I always take the current notebook, whatever I'm writing. So, because baseball's slow and mostly boring. It has a few moments to look up and cheer, but a lot of the times it's like, uh-huh, whatever, give me my notebook, give me my pen, and away I go. And I actually wrote that Steve observing Bucky and this is this is an AU so Bucky sat down at the end of, of, of uh, a, a Captain America Winter Soldier and he was picked up then Steve finds him later they go to Sam's home and he's Bucky's looking at this house and Steve observes that he's like a fish out of water who just, just realized he can breathe air and it was just a, an epiphany that uh, that absolutely, absolutely describes Bucky in that moment. He's just newly released from the brain thing, you know? It was not that long ago, maybe a day, since Cap said the magic words, I'm with you to the end of the line, that broke at him out of the brainwashing. So he's still just learning how to be a person. He felt like a machine, an asset, a thing. And that's all they let him feel like. His feelings were irrelevant. His opinions were irrelevant. He didn't have any memories. It was just lost to him, all of it. And so just he has to relearn what it means to be a person that's something I tried to write in two stories that I did read here and that was mainly in um, the first pieces and that's the title stems from when Bucky tells Sam that his memory is like a 5,000 piece puzzle that has no picture and it's scattered among, and half of it is scattered among all the continents of the world. Something like that. That is a humongous puzzle. 
My husband and I did a 1,000-piece puzzle. He got it for Christmas. It was a Star Wars puzzle, and we put it together, brought our card table up from downstairs, stuck it in the living room, and put it together over several days, and lost a few pieces, found a few pieces, found, lost the very last piece, found it in the trash can, and it was all wet. <laughs> we kind of wiped it off and let it dry and then smashed it by, with some books and stuff. <laughs> And then put it in the puzzle and it fits and it's down. We put some books on that top, that part of the puzzle just to make sure it was all down. And what we would do every day, because we do have five, four cats rather. And yeah, we had no kittens at the time. So what we would do with these, with these cats walking across that card table, because it's right by their cat tree and they have no qualms about getting on the card table, is every day as we finished... We would put the loose pieces back in the box, but we'd put the pieces where we kind of think we know where they are into the puzzle, and then we'd cover it with plastic wrap taped around the edges. And actually, that's where it's sitting right now. It is still <laughs> taped under plastic wrap on our card table. We've just been using other things on top of it, playing board games and whatnot. But we are going to take up that, and we are going to take apart that puzzle, put it back in the box, and take it to the thrift store because today we bought another 10 that or 1000 piece puzzle 1000 piece puzzles are challenging this one has kitty cats looking in an aquarium of fish it's very busy so it's gonna be a tough one but i want that challenge i didn't want a puzzle that was 500 pieces or 300 pieces i wanted 750 or better um so we got this one it might not be a thousand it might be 750 it might, it might be 750. I feel that's challenging enough. It's not too far from a th 1,000, but it's a very challenging picture because some of the fish look alike, so you might think it goes here, but it goes over there. Um, it's it's going to be very challenging to do this puzzle as it is, even at 750. So, but we're going to do that, and it's, it's kind of fun. I enjoy the challenge of it in fact since I stay up later than my husband every night I'd be kind of like looking and go oh I found a piece and I would slide it under the plastic where I could and because it took two pieces of plastic to cover the whole thing there was a gap there that kind of stuck to itself because plastic wrap does that but you could kind of tease apart that opening and slide another piece in there and then move it along <laughs> and that's what I would do and find more pieces and more pieces to the puzzle when he'd gone to bed but uh, we kind of enjoy that. So, uh, yeah, we're going to let the Star Wars puzzle go. Because once you do them, you really don't need to do them again. And all the pieces are there. I have a couple puzzles downstairs from a thrift store that I put together. And like two three pieces were missing even then. Which was sad. One of them was, I believe, uh, it was one of the... Oh, I'm losing my... I know the name of this castle on the in the Loire Valley, but I'm just blanking on it in, in France. And I've been there, and I didn't get to go in the castle that day because it was closed, but I was in the grounds. Um, so, dang it, I am blanking on it. But anyway, one of those is that. And one of them, I believe, was Chambord, and it's just, which is a beautiful castle that I did get to go in. That was the one I really wanted to see. And that has 365 chimneys and this famous dual spiral staircase in it. It was just gorgeous. I fell in love with it in French class in high school just as a poster on the wall. 
I didn't get to go to France in the front, you know, in the trips from school because I, you know, we didn't have that kind of money to say, you know, to put aside for it. But when I was in the Czech Republic teaching, I did find a travel agency that was offering a trip to France and I saved up my money and I paid for it and I went on a trip to France. And let me tell you, if you're already in Europe, it's a lot easier to get somewhere else in Europe than if you're coming from the United States. So it worked out great. And that's the trip that I got to see those, the castles along the Loire. I got to see Mont Saint-Michel. I got to see um, the I got to see Paris, of course. I kind of left the tour group for most of the day in Paris, kind of went my own way because my French teacher had kind of drilled into our into our um, minds the map of Paris. In fact, we had to make it. We couldn't just draw it. It couldn't be two-dimensional. It had to be three-dimensional. And we had to do a thing of France, and we had to do a thing of Paris. I remember my France map was a pizza, a cheese pizza with different toppings to be the provinces. My teacher really liked that one. She was hard to please, but that one worked. Anywho, I kind of knew my way around Paris, so I went to Lac de Triomphe. I went to the, um, I went to the Eiffel Tower. I walked up the steps to the second level. Took my pictures all around that, figuring that's all I do because walking up is free. Um, and having walked in the the mountainous region of the Czech Republic for a year, my legs could do it. I walked up all those stairs, or some almost like three hundred some odd stairs, without stopping, except long enough to read a, pla uh, a sign when it was there. You know, to tell that tells you about like every other landing, it would have something that told you about the the tower. So I'd take long enough to read it, and I'd go off again. But then I was there and I thought to myself, what if I never get back to Paris again? I will regret never going up to the top. So I paid my way to get from the second to the third level and took pictures all around again. And to this day, I have not been back to Paris. So it was a good idea to do. Um, I didn't go in the Loire. It was, it was too, far too busy and you could spend 40 years there. Um, I didn't go into... Um, Notre Dame because there was a construction going on, but I was on the steps. We went up to Montmartre. I did catch back up with the tour group for a um, boat tour on one of the bateau mouches along the Seine. So caught back up then and on we went. Because if you remember, I think I've mentioned it, it was a Czech tour. So the tour leader, the tour guide spoke Czech. <laughs> and I'd, I, I'm not fluent in Czech. So I didn't get a whole lot from the Czech. So I just kind of left and caught back up with them. All right, on, on, in Paris, not everywhere else, but in Paris. Okay, so puzzles. A 5,000 piece puzzle is a humongously challenging puzzle. And if it has no picture, just imagine a thoroughly gray puzzle with 5,000 pieces, trying to put that together. So Bucky's trying to, you know, really make a metaphor about his, his puzzles. So that's, that was in Healing Hurts, I believe. And so in the first pieces, that is what was the first pieces he got of his puzzle. So his memory was gone until Steve says the magic words. And then, you know, he falls into the river. Well, canonically, Bucky gets him out of the river, leaves him on the banks and walks away. And the first pieces goes from when he walks away. So as he does what he does, he learns some things, pieces, and he remembers a few things, pieces. 
So these are a few pieces of that puzzle, the very first pieces of his puzzle. That's the title, the first pieces. Learning to Live is the second half of that, which covers the time between those events and Captain America Civil War. I managed to cover those two years in two short stories, which is pretty amazing. So um, I have read them both in here, but I wrote the first pieces long before I wrote the um, second part, Learning to Live. But in that one, he's learning to live with all the memories of what he did under the brainwashing. As we know in the show, he deals with a whole lot of guilt over what he had no control over when they made him do it. Anywho, back to the that. It's... Um, I got a tangent off of titles, then a tangent about puzzles, and then a tangent about France. That happens. Okay. So I, I think the point was that I will change things if they're major issues, but I will not make giant changes to any story that's already finished posting. I will make structural changes or factual changes if they're absolutely necessary. But I, I don't feel that same way about whips. If I find that I need to change the number of people who died or how much time, how many hours it's going to be till the Ghidari get there, I can go ahead and make that change to the previous chapter because I'm not done with the story yet. That story is still fluid. It's still in the works. And that was the stage at this, this point. Now you're feel, hearing it as it is posted, it is finished, it is uh, figuratively set in stone. So the only thing I'm fixing now are typos. Which I did find a few, not that many in this chapter, which is kind of nice. Um, but I did find, I believe, three. Three. That's not bad. Maybe four. Uh, made a bit, might have been four. That is not bad at all. Um... It's nice to find that, but uh, we have two chapters left. I will do one tomorrow, and I will do one Monday, I hope, and we will be done with the Honored and done with this season of There Are Three of Me. I don't know exactly when I'm going to start the next season. I do want to try and get a chapter of Perchance to Dream. Then it's back to Bucky, which should be a lot easier. Um because I keep wanting to imagine him right now instead of uh, Leonard Snart, which is the one for Perchance per per to Dream. Um, but I'm going to try to transition myself back to uh, Legends of Tomorrow and get that chapter written so that I can then move on to the next of the whips and just take turns with them. That's probably my best chance of getting through them. I've done three of the four... No, I guess I've only done two since I left, you know, I decided to do that again after I wrote the chapter of, of The Path Not Taken. I've written two of the four, so not, not so great. But, you know, it, it was hard coming back to any one of them after a year away. It shouldn't be as hard to come back to them after a month or two. So that's the plan. So once I get that written, I will see what I want to do. I would really love to finish one of these whips sooner rather than later, but I don't know if that's 
possible momentous might be the next one finished just because I know what the next chapter is and I may just want to run from there because and you just write it up because they're fairly short chapters and I kind of know what I want to do from there to the just about the end of the story so I might be able to finish that which would give us that story and the faith trilogy still to read when I write when I get to the Bucky's turn I have two channels to go there I have the series of short stories that I might pick another you know put another one in and then I want to write another chapter of the path not taken so if I write another short story I can read that as well but I will not read a whip into here I will only read finished stories but there's still enough material to read even with just the faith trilogy we're talking a lot of words <laughs> so it's still it might be three seasons I'm not sure either that is one very long season because it is a trilogy and I might do it in separate seasons just to give me a chance to write because when I'm reading in this I'm kind of imagining more this you know so right now I'm back to DS9 and faith is DS9 so I'm in Julian Bashir when I need to be in something else to write one of my whips. So I might read one story, write, 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 and come back and read the next story, block, block, write, 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 and then come back and read the third one, and write, 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 and hopefully have something else to read by the time I'm done. <laughs> we'll see. Otherwise, I want to figure out how I can get some guests to come on here. It should be easier than in my season one or two where I had the, the, two, the three guests because I just held my phone up with its microphone to the my little computer that had the Zoom. It wasn't great audio, but now they have an invite a friend feature in um, Anchor. So I'm hoping to be able to do that, to be able to share you know the microphone with someone to have a good discussion about some topic of writing and maybe read something of theirs. So I would like to get back to that, especially if I'm all out of finished works to read. But overall, I've been enjoying reading my stories into this podcast, not just because it helps me find the typos, but because it's fun to revisit my stories. And I hope that this means my stories are accessible in a way that they weren't accessible before. You, you can do what one of my uh, reviewers did and listen along with the story while you read it online and then have the commentary. That's what she did. She enjoyed that. But if you have trouble reading on a screen, listening to the story might be the way to go. And it might be very useful to you. Um, for the visually impaired, audio is a great way to go though they probably have text editors who could read it this you know you get some inflection or whatever you know i'm trying to read as an actor you're not getting the accents i wish i could do when anybody's listening but <laughs> but you are getting you know i'm trying to read as an actor so i'm trying to act out the parts to laugh when there's laughter that sort of thing um so you know this might be great for those who are who are visually um, disabled so 
that might, you know, is, a, is a, another way to reach another audience. And I love to be able to do that. It also means that instead of me reading in the car so my husband can hear it, I can play the podcast and let me read it that way <laughs> because, because it can wear your voice out reading a whole story or I can't do that with the whips. I, I read all of Momentous at a time during one car trip. Um, it can really wear out the voice, but you can just let the Spotify or the anchor just play it. There we go. <laughs> So it's good for road trips. And it's not just good for road trips for me. It can be good for road trips for you. And you want to hear that story, but you're, you're driving across country while well, you have something to, to listen to. If you're bored at work and audio in your ear doing something else, you can do listen to that. I actually play YouTube videos, but I tend to be more productive when it's just the ones that are reading Reddit stories. So I'm just listening, not looking. <laughs> So um, there's that. Sometimes I play podcasts when I'm working. So, well, this comment, uh, commentary time is being almost as long as the chapter. So I'm going to close it down now and tell you where you can reach me. You can tweet me at inhildi or email me at inhildi at gmail.com. And inhildi is spelled I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. That's I as in India, N is in Nancy, H is in Henry, E is in Edward, I is in India, L is in Le Lima, and D as in David, and I as in Igloo. Yeah, <laughs> I have to think about how to do that. I kind of got some of the, the military way that they say it and some of the not. But anyway, that's how you spell in Hildy. I look forward to hearing from you. And again, Alien Us is still available if you want it as a book and pay only shipping. You will get the book for free. All right. Let me know if you want it. I will see you tomorrow.